0: Today on Something You Should Know, we start with some ways to improve your mood when you're stuck inside your house and can't go anywhere,
1: then proven ways to get people to like you almost instantly. In in technical terms, it's the quality and the quantity of the energy they give off, but it's basically their attitude more than anything else. Because your attitude not only drives your behavior, it drives other people's behavior. Also, how to make a quick, easy,
0: and effective homemade hand sanitizer. And the negative power of complaining. Why you should stop complaining and stop being around people who do.
2: Studies out of Stanford show that if you expose yourself to 30 minutes of complaining every day, it does physical damage to the brain. You know, people previously know that if they're around a complainer, they feel the energy seeping out of them. Well, we now know why that is the case. It,
0: Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. With all this sitting around not having a lot to do, I know it's making a lot of people grumpy and upset and depressed. And so a psychologist has come up with several scientifically proven activities that can boost your mood almost instantly. First of all, get up. No snooze button, no staying in bed till the very last second. Just get up, open the curtains, let in the natural light, and get your day going. Listen to your favorite song. Scientists have found that listening to music changes the way we perceive the world for the better. Try to notice the good. It's easier to focus on what's wrong, but do the opposite, and it will bring you joy. Laugh. Research shows that laughter soothes tension, improves your immune system, and even eases pain. See a friend. Maybe don't get too close, but see a friend or talk to a friend. Friends make you feel good and they are good for you. And perform a random act of kindness. It stimulates the release of endorphins and there's a strong relationship between this type of activity and increased self-esteem and self-worth. And that is something you should know. You know how some people that you meet are just They're just more likable. People are drawn to them. They have that instant rapport thing. So how is it that they do that? And could you do that? Well, Nicholas Boothman thinks so. Nicholas has been mastering personal communication strategies for quite a while. And he is author of a book called How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. So it's interesting when I think about when when I meet someone for the first time, there is that that immediate judgment, that immediate sense of whether I like that person or not, right? That's
1: what humans do. We make that instant judgment to some extent, right? The truth is that we decide how we feel about someone in the first two seconds of seeing them or hearing them if it's on the phone. Uh, it's just part of the fight or flight response. So you can't really blame people for doing it. I mean, you can't stop them jumping to conclusions about you. But there's a lot you can do to, to 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 adjust how they feel about you.
0: And that idea that people like or don't like you within the first few seconds. So what's going on there? What what makes that determination?
1: Actually, the the fight or flight response is is for things in 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 mammals. It's we we're, we're actually deci- It's about safety. Am I am I safe or not? But we're actually deciding: do I do I do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Do I fight it or do I run for it? I mean, those are basically what we're deciding, and uh, and we just pick up signals from other people that that tell us how we feel about them.
0: But there are people that you know they they don't make us necessarily want to run away. But there's you know there's something about them. They're they're not quite. My kind of guy, you know what I mean. But it's not—it's not like they're. I want to run away from them.
1: No, absolutely. What what, what does freak us out are mixed messages. Basically, we respond to uh, the visual, the vocal, and the verbal. In other words, when your voice tone, your words, and your body language are all saying the same thing, we tend to trust you. I mean, that's what actors do—they're very good at that. But uh, if they're not saying the same thing, you know, if someone's smiling whilst they're angry at you, or looking. I mean, I had I have people all the time when I do my talks come up to me, and I, I had a woman recently came up and said, you know, I, I have this problem. My my kids are always saying, "Mom, why are you so angry all the time?" And she says, "I'm not angry. Uh, I'm excited." So, well, you look angry, and uh, that was simply because the you know her body language and her words and her voice tone went all saying the same thing. That's what we that's what freaks us out. You know, those people that smile at you when they're angry at you, <laughs> like you know. And so what is it, because
0: we all know those people that everybody is attracted to, Uh, they walk into a room and and pretty soon everybody's around that. What is that?
1: You know, first of all, I do get asked that a lot. And that's not. Exactly what really happens. Sure, there are some people that that walk into a room that attracts people's attention, but they're not suddenly all around them. But they're people they feel comfortable with. Their body language is giving off. Basically, it's what I talk about doing in the first two or three seconds of seeing someone: look them in the eye, smile, open your body language, and synchronize with the people around you, and then look for common ground. When you see certain people, and you tend to be attracted to them look i was a, i was a fashion photographer for 25 years i, I, I had studios on three continents and I, I mean i know i know why people are attracted to models it's things like their their faces and are symmetrical that's a huge a huge attraction to, uh, when someone is uh, symmetrical when they do eye contact look it's simple a smile says i'm happy and i'm confident eye contact says trust is in the air these are quite simple things so when you want to
0: make someone like you, I mean, it it almost sounds phony. It's like, I, I, do I really want to make someone like me? If if they don't like me, they don't like me.
1: If if cooperation is what you want, then then there are certain things you can do, which I, I just mentioned. Then look them in the eye, smile, open your body language. And they will start to feel trusting towards you. And it happens in the first couple of seconds. But if it
0: doesn't happen in the first couple of seconds, have you lost the opportunity or not?
1: It's difficult. It's difficult. Uh, we do. Di- look, here's, here's the bottom line. When people like you, they tend to see the best in you and, and what you represent. And we tend to look for opportunities to say yes to people that we like. When we don't like them, uh, the opposite's true. Um, we tend to see the worst in them, or, or get out of here now, you know, your subconscious is saying, uh-uh, back away. And we, we sometimes see the worst. If I, if I like the, uh, you know, if, I li- if the guy's jumping all over the place and I like him, he's enthusiastic. If I don't like him, he's an idiot. You know, if I like the woman, she's warm and she's 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 you know she's approachable. If I don't like her, she's dull and boring. Just by this, it's all the same body language, really. And so it does matter because when we like people, you know, they tend to see the best of us in us, and that's really what it's all about. And not only in us, but in what we represent. I know that your people who haven't heard your program and tune in it, tune into it. In the first couple of seconds, they're either saying, "Yeah, I like this. I like this guy." Or they're saying, what else is on? It's just, it's just, well, I say that with the greatest of respect. Of course. You have the voice I wish I had. You have a super charismatic voice and uh, et cetera, which is what you should darn well have after 20 years. What about though, because you
0: say, you know, it happens in the first few seconds that, that when you open up the body language and everything, but, but it's also, Your personality, your attitude. I mean, what I've seen people that look very appealing, and then you start to talk to them and go, "Oh my God!" You know what? what?" Yeah. So, what is that? Talk about that.
1: Well, well, first of all, that's the that's the good news and the bad news about face to face communication is you're a genius until you open your mouth. Um, But the the fact that you said the word there, the attitude, the first thing we respond to in somebody else. Well, in, in technical terms, it's the quality and the quantity of the energy they give off. But um, it's basically their attitude. It's your attitude more than anything else that determines your success or failure. Because your attitude not only drives your behavior, it drives other people's behavior. I mean, you know, if you if you came on the air now and you were angry, I would be responding in a defensive way or whatever. Or if you sounded angry, but you sound completely cool and together so uh, you know it makes me respond in a certain way and that's you know I have people all the time that say when people get to know me they really like me but you know that's great for your next door neighbor and and, and your family and anybody else who can't escape you but you know when it comes to to work or to dating it doesn't cut it What about this idea
0: that people like people who are like them
1: Well yeah we are attracted to people who are like ourselves um, we we like people who who look it's all about finding common ground i mean the, the whole the whole the bottom line in, in a first impression is the faster you can find common ground uh the quicker you 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 can, you can just relax into it and so we tend to like people who are like ourselves who have the same taste in i don't know holidays books music food um we 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 like them we get on with them we can find you know i i in my in my talks and into, I do audiences of up to six thousand people quite regularly, and I'll get them on their feet, and I'll just say, find common ground in in 20 seconds with somebody, and you know, uh, they do it. They can, they you know, they both they both like the movie Titanic. They've got twins in the family. Uh, they both enjoy certain sports. As soon as that happens, soon as you find common ground, uh, you've 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 cracked it. You've made a great first impression. What's a good way to do that
0: though when you when you meet someone and you start talking to them you can't say well let's find some common ground so we can continue this conversation how do you, how do you have that conversation so that the common ground reveals itself
1: I did this exactly this on on good morning america a few years back when they said okay so i walk into a room full of of strangers give me five tips on what to do and i said well number 1 uh, when you walk into a room, head for the middle of the room. Well, number no one, wear great clothes. More people take you seriously. Don't have to wear spectacular clothes, but just dress for the occasion. Uh, walk into the middle of the room. As you walk into the middle of the room, walk slightly more slowly. Um, and then I tell them about this, the the three-second rule. You know, you're you're probably at these one of these events to meet people so go up to people and how do you get people talking you do what you do you do what podcasters do or talk show hosts do or journalists do you ask an open question uh, you ask a uh, you make a statement followed by an open question so on the today show she said okay well what do you mean here i say okay i hear new york's a fantastic place if i only had half a day what should i see that's how you get me talking. You make a statement and you ask me an open question. That's what we can do with, with anybody make a statement about the occasion. If you're in a, attend- if you're somewhere where you're supposed to talk to people, we call those closed fields. It could be an event, it could be a networking thing, it could be an interview like this. The intention is that we talk to each other. In open fields, which are slightly different, uh, there's a different way of, of talking to complete strangers and and talking to strangers is really what i'm i've been focusing on for the last couple of years in my talks because life doesn't happen without talking to strangers and we're in a real mess as far as talking to strangers in the world right now i'm talking with
0: nicholas boothman who has some very helpful advice his book is called how to make people like you in 90 seconds or less a shout out to clariton for supporting this episode and providing us with samples you see For as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Now, I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, it just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. So, Nicholas, some people just seem to have that gift, it seems anyway, that they can talk to strangers and make everybody feel comfortable. Uh, Do you think that's true, or are they working at it? It just looks easy.
1: It just looks easy. I have five children. The total age of my kids now is actually 225, so I've got... (laughs) Three of them in their fifties, and you know, a couple arriving in their forties, and they weren't—they weren't all naturally, um, naturally able to go up to complete strangers and start a conversation. But they practiced, and we had fun little things that we did as when they were growing up that made one of my children in particular, who might have been other people might have used the label I, I absolutely abhor, which is shy, uh, attach shy to somebody. And uh, she could have been that way, but today she runs corporations in uh, out of Norway and high-tech corporations and, and networks all over the world. But only because we showed her how to do it and we encouraged her to do it. Um, look, the, the 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 first thing I talk about to my audience is I ask them um, a professor, uh, Professor Harrell from Stanford business school, spent 20 years looking for what he called the success factor. He went across all areas of work and, and business and private life and he came up, they came up, their team with one thing which was they called the number one identifiable predictor of success. And you know what it was? It was the ability to speak up. If you don't speak up, you're invisible. And that's what makes the all of the difference in these things.
0: It's a, that is so interesting because, and you had said just a few moments ago, you, you go into the center of the room and talk to someone. Well, to a lot yeah. of people, that's terrifying to just talk to someone. But a lot of people
1: don't think they can do that. Well, you know, here's something else. But I mean, I'm, 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 I'm slightly off on a tangent, but, you know, we had to learn to have no confidence um we were all born with just two fears, the fear of sudden loud noises and the fear of falling. All the rest of the things we get scared about in this life, we had to learn. They're learned fears. And I deal a lot of the time now with, I'm dealing, working with our local police force and uh, with human trafficking and helping in that area, doing what little bit I can to help. But you know, a lot of it comes down to not having confidence. Confidence is a huge topic right now, uh, with digital distractions and political correctness and polarized politics. We've made strangers out of everybody, and the result is a an epidemic of anxiety and depression, and and uh, but and a lack of confidence. But you know, confidence is, is they say, oh, well, face your fears and do it anyway, or or. You know, or fake it till you make it, this is to answer your question about going into a room and talking to people. But the simple thing about confidence is that people who are com- who are confident are comfortable with rejection and they're comfortable with failure. Just those two things. So I have some simple steps where anyone can get comfortable with rejection and anyone can get comfortable with, with failure. That's what makes people lack the confidence. And so to walk into a room and talk to people uh, you just need a couple of steps to explain to people that there's no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. The whole idea of failure is is that it, we learn to get better. And the whole idea of re- there's no such thing as rejection. There's only selection. Thank God when I was 15 and used all my pocket money to go and have cha-cha lessons so I could get the girl from the local hairdressing salon to fall in love with me. Thank God she rejected me or I wouldn't be where I am today.
0: You know? <laughs> so, so those invisible signals, those things that you send off that make people say to themselves, oh, this is a likable guy, uh, those are what?
1: Yeah, well, eye contact is huge. What I tell people is uh, when you meet someone for the first time, look them in the eye smile, open your body language, and find common ground. But first you have to adjust your attitude, and you have to adjust your attitude to what I call a really useful attitude instead of a really useless attitude. A really useful attitude could be uh, welcoming, curious, enthusiastic, warm. Really useless attitudes are things like bored, rude, uh, hostile or appearing that way. A lot of the people don't realise, with their arms folded and looking at the ground when they're talking to you for the first time, that they just come across as as hostile. Um, so, so first you adjust your attitude, uh, which is before you even approach somebody or in, even walk into a room. We all do it when we walk into a room. Uh, we well, we should. We adjust our attitude to some something or other. It's you know, put a smile on your face and get on with it. Um, and then eye contact. Just notice the colour of the eyes. Of the people that you're talking to, that's enough eye contact to set put trust in the air. Now, I did. I did uh, some work for a, one of the the large um, automotive motive company. Well, I've done all of them, but in one of them, when we got on this subject, they now have on their worksheet in their technical in their service department, customer's name, customer's address, customer's eye color. It just obliges the mechanic for a second to look into the eyes of the of the of the customer. That says trust is in the air. A smile, whether you have a natural smile or or not, a smile says that person is happy and confident. Um, not everybody has a natural smile and not all professional models have a natural smile, but there's a trick I learned from models when I was a photographer. They simply say, they'll say to themselves the word great in bursts of three in stupid voices. Great, 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 when they're on the set and eventually their eyes are warm and they they look like they're smiling. You can say that to yourself as you approach somebody um, open your body language just means you know don't have your arms folded across your chest um in other words simply kind of almost point your heart at the heart of the person not in any stupid way but just expose your heart and um and then and then start saying something and it's uh, it's perfectly normal to make a comment about where you are I had an awful time parking today and, uh, and what about you or isn't this a great place Or I've never been here before? It's just making statements.
0: What do you mean by talking in color?
1: Well, it means that we, this is to be persuasive, it's a whole other level of communication. Talking in color means that we add sensory information into what we're talking about. I'm. I, I, when I get in on my farm here, when I get... Um, briefings from corporations. Sometimes I'll have it be on a conference call. It'll be the president and some members of the board, and they'll start talking. They'll say, hi, how are you? And I'll say, you know what? I'm just looking out the window right now. I can see the horses coming up the valley uh, into the paddock. And I've, I'll say that within the first few moments. And they're in, I've already straight into their imaginations. But talking in colour there's three things, really. One of them is adding sensory information to whatever you're talking about. To talk about the way... If you tell someone you went on holiday, you talk about the way some of the things that you saw, some of the things that you heard, uh, maybe the smells, the tastes involve all the senses. We're hungry, we're desperate, we're desperate for stories. Um, stories are to the human mind what food and fresh air are to the body. We just crave stories, and that's what your podcast is. It's a, a lot of it's just stories. It's getting into people's imaginations. The other part about talking in colour, the big part, is being able to condense. Um, Condense things into simple images. And one of the best people at doing this in the States is Warren Buffett. Uh, uh, he makes pictures to, to describe things. When he was asked how he felt about his job, uh, he said, I tap dance to work. That's talking in color because people who have kind of visual can see it. People who are sound, auditory can hear it and people who are feeling based uh, can feel it, can feel that what it feels like. When he was asked, to explain the the 2008 financial bust, he said, the tide's gone out and we can see who's been swimming naked. Really great communicators, Steve Jobs, uh, all of, all those guys. You'll see uh, they, they use metaphors all the time. They say it's kind of like, ah, and that's talking in color. And it's very charismatic. Look, uh, for, those, for those of your listeners old enough to remember Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali, he said, I'm going to st- uh, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Uh, these life is a bowl of cherries. This is absolutely beautiful for uh, for the minds uh, for the minds of other people for the imagination. Imagination is the strongest force we possess. It sure
0: makes sense what you're saying, and yet it is so hard. It is hard for a lot of us to talk to people the way you're talking.
1: Just say hello to three people today that are strangers. Just say hi. Uh, make it your goal to get rejected three times. Keep doing it if you want until three times nobody responds to you. That's all. <laughs> just, or just you know, I, have a, I, I, do, I work with kids. And I, I was interviewing four kids in a cafe other that I walk up to them, and, they, and they've they never been taught to talk to strangers. they will be told not to talk to strangers. You don't talk to strangers, you've got no life. Uh, everything you do in life, you're going to be healthier, wealthier, smarter, wiser, richer. Um, it, the only way you're going to do it is by you're going to need a stranger's help to do that. But this one girl said, well, she said, I mouth high people. I thought that's a great word. As she's walking by and she's only 14, she just goes with her mouth, you know, and look away again. And that's how they're learning to talk to strangers.
0: Yeah, well, I've always thought about this whole don't talk to strangers thing that it's not necessarily such a great idea. Because as you say, if you don't talk to strangers and you don't learn how... You' uh, think of all the opportunities you're not getting.
1: Talking to strangers isn't just the right thing to do. it's a matter of survival. Everything we want in this life, be it tickets to the Rose Bowl to be on your show to have a great career, uh, whatever the perfect partner, you're going to need a stranger's help to get it. So all those people, you know they, they tell little children, don't talk to strangers. So the kid gets lost in the mall and goes to hide somewhere. Much better to say, if you get lost, go and talk to another mummy, or go and talk to the lady, somebody behind the counter. You know, that's that's useful. It's about, you know, there's this the, the stranger danger, this fear of strangers is unbelievable. Do you know what your chances of a kid being kidnapped by a complete stranger are in the United States? The the latest available figures were from 2016. Your ch- the chance of your child being kidnapped by a complete stranger is one in six hundred and seventy five thousand. And yet we tell them all, don't talk to strangers. Uh, I've I've interviewed and what have we got now? We have one and a half generations of soft, narcissistic, decadent, over photographed, underinspired kids because they're and it's not their fault. It's the way they've been brought up and brainwashed. Well I like I
0: like your advice because it's simple, it's easy to follow, and I think people have a sense that it's It's probably pretty effective. You just have to go out and try it. Nicholas Boothman has been my guest. The book is How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. And you will find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Nicholas.
1: I'm really grateful. Thank you so much.
0: You probably don't have to think too long or think about too many people in your life before you can come up with someone you know to be a complainer. Maybe even you complain a little more than you wish you did, or a little more than other people wish you did. Interestingly, complaining is more than just annoying. There are some real serious consequences to complaining, both from being a complainer and from having to listen to it. Here to discuss this is Trevor Blake. Trevor is an entrepreneur and author of several books, including Three Simple Steps. Hi Trevor, thanks for being here, and so aside from being irritating to listen to, why should we be concerned about all the complaining going on?
2: Well, uh, two reasons, the uh, latest neuroscientific data shows that um, the brain works more like a muscle than we previously thought, so the more you repeat a behavior, the more you become that behavior. So if you surround yourself with a bunch of complainers, the more likely you are to become a complainer yourself, but that's only half the story studies out of stanford show that if you expose yourself to 30 minutes of complaining every day it does physical damage to the brain it actually peels back the neurons in a part of the brain that we need for cognitive functioning problem solving and uh, adapting to um, changing circumstances well you know we live in a world where everything's constantly changing so that's not what you want so um, you know People previously know that if they're around a complainer, they feel the energy seeping out of them. Well, we now know why that is, uh, that is the case. It's complaining is doing physical damage, so you really have to either remove yourself from the source or shut off that source.
0: Well, that's pretty fascinating. So complainers are making us stupid.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're turning our brains to mush, in effect.
0: I think that, that people would like to think, and, and to some degree, I think you notice that some people are affected by that more than others. Other people can be around complainers and there's a wall there and it and it doesn't affect them whereas other people as you say you know it just sucks the life right out of you
2: that's right and i think a good way to think about it is the same as passive smoking some people seem to be okay sitting around a smoker when they're not a smoker and other people just can't stand to be in the same room as a smoker and i i think of complaining as passive smoking uh, Uh, I grew up, my father was a chain-smoker, and it was like growing up in a smoke-filled balloon. Well, I tried to change his behavior, but I failed at that because I was a kid and he was a father. So my only recourse was to actually remove myself from that toxic environment and and go out into the fresh air. It's the same with complaining. Uh, If you feel that it bothers you or you feel affected by it, you've got to put distance between yourself and the source of that feeling. Yeah,
0: which is not always easy to do because if they sit next to you at work or you married one, you're screwed. (laughs)
2: That's absolutely true, and I have a real-life example now because uh, I've been married 30 years, so I've known my mother-in-law 30 years, and I'm one of those unusual uh, uh, men that has nothing but good things to say about his mother-in-law. We have a great relationship. But she lives in a place uh, where she's surrounded by people of a similar age who are always complaining about their health and the fact the economy is going south and their pension doesn't go as far, and it was much better in the old days. And, And when she comes to stay with us, she stays for three months. Well, for the first two weeks this wizened old lady comes to the front door and the first words out of her mouth are complaints about the food on the plane or the fact that I drove too fast from the airport or the weather's not very nice. And my wife and I have learned over the years to just completely ignore that. Don't respond to it. Don't try and change the way she is. Just don't respond to it. And two weeks into her, her visit, it's like an alien came in and took the wizened old lady away and they replaced it with everybody's favorite granny and this is now somebody who has incredible energy more energy even than i have and doesn't limp anymore and just sees the good around her all the time so the transformation is remarkable but it happens because the brain hardwires into whatever stimulus it's getting so where she lives she's getting negative stimulus all the time when she's with us she's in a much more positive environment and the results can be seen both in her attitude and in her actual physical health
0: and is she aware of what happened? Does she, could she consciously explain it the way you just did?
2: We do have those conversations, actually, around the kitchen table on a, on a regular basis. And she's aware of it, but when she goes back to her environment in Europe and gets back into those conversations with all the people who are complaining around her, you know, my wife calls her every day once she gets back. And, and you can, I can gradually tell from listening into the conversations that she slowly sinks into um the, that, that wizened old lady again, and she gets back into that complaining mentality because she's hard. She she can't separate herself from those people around her in her environment, or chooses not to, and so her brain hardwires back into that old way of thinking.
0: So, if you just ignore it, it goes away.
2: Yes, if you just ignore it, then, I mean, if you ignore the complaining, then you're not exposing your brain to those complaints. Um, you know, it's not easy to do. I mean, it's it's easy to do if you have control over the source of that complaining. So we have a degree of control in our home over whether we pay attention or respond or react to anything we see on TV or hear from somebody's voice. Uh, you know, if you're in the workplace or somewhere else, it's less easy to ignore it and you have to take a more um, a physical reaction to it. So, you know, leave the room or take a bathroom break, you know, those sorts of things. But
0: going back to your mother-in-law, what do you think would happen if she's, if she arrived there as kind of this complaining person, and that's kind of her personality with you, and let's say it was also her personality when she's around someone else, person B, and around you, though, over the course of time, she got better and she stopped complaining. If she were to go next door to person B, would she just start complaining all over again, or would you have changed her Internally, it within her, or just with you?
2: No, it's changed internally within her for as long as she allows allows that to happen. So, if she went next door and had coffee, which she does actually, she goes next door and have, has coffee with uh, uh, our, our uh, Irish friend. And um, uh, you know, I, I have Irish. Blood in me, so I can say this. You know, the Irish are typically a bunch of complainers. We we enjoy complaining, um, and uh, you know, I I, see, I can if she's there for a couple of hours. When she comes back, she will bring some of those complaints back with her, and we have to respond the same way. We just ignore it. We smile, you know, shake it off and ignore it. But I'm afraid some people just just do not protect their brains enough to avoid it being immediately re- rewired. I think if the brain is a, you know electric circuit, it needs, it needs to find a source of power. And so it, it pays attention to whatever it feels is the nearest source of power, unless you do something about that.
0: If complaining has that effect on us, what else has an effect on us like that? I mean, our, our, it makes it sound as if our, our brains are pretty vulnerable to outside stimulus. Like, what else?
2: Well, I think we've, we're, you know, we live in a world where there's constant noise around us, and of course, most of the noise these days is from the negative and sensational media that's around us. That's a that's a very strong source of uh, of complaining and negativity. And I know a lot of people who are obsessed with their uh, thirty seconds of Fox News, and and they can't survive without it. And they're, they're, that's because their brain is knows that that's the source of energy that it's going to. So, um, you know, in three simple steps, the, the step one is all about finding in, in, inside yourself, again, that pioneering spirit we were born with. Well, you can't find that spirit if you become a slave to the fashion or the trend that the TV and the newspapers are, are are influencing you with all the time. And very often, what grabs people's attention is something fearful. If we see something fearful, we stop and we're paralyzed and we pay attention to it. And so, of course, media works on that. It's, it's, it's just a natural... Uh, a part of the way we live today that the media will throw out a sensational headline and it freezes us and we pay attention to it. Um, You know you have to protect yourself from that just the same as you have to protect yourself from being surrounded by complainers.
0: Does it work the other way that if you're around say you know really happy upbeat positive optimistic people that that'll rub off just as well or does it only work in the negative?
2: No you're absolutely right it works in 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 the opposite way as well because you know I have yet to meet a self-made man or woman who's a complainer or who's fixated with daily news they're people who are outgoing and always looking forward never looking back and if you you know were to read the autobiographies of people like Carnegie and Ford you know it 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 becomes quite clear very early on in those autobiographies that these were men who didn't really care about what just happened five minutes ago because it's in the history and so they're not going to moan and groan about what went wrong they're looking always in a sort of solution oriented fashion so they're always looking forward um and so you can choose to, to take that approach and and your life will reflect the results of that
0: so knowing what you know i mean what 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 else can we um you know the complaining thing is a great is a great example of of what you're talking about, but what else is it that you know that that I could use in my life like that that would uh would help me
2: well, first of all, the first step is to be aware that complaining is affecting you or that you seem you you may suddenly become aware that you know what I do watch a lot of uh my morning news. You know, I, I do get up in the morning and switch on my radio and listen to depressing information about the economy. But well, maybe I should change that behavior. And so instead of getting up and doing that, maybe I'll get up and spend 10 minutes by myself and just sit quietly and just allow my brain to function at its natural speed of light and, uh, and, and think about the day ahead, what I'm going to do with my day. It's just changing that pattern of behavior makes a huge difference in outcome.
0: Well, it sounds like, you know, you, your brain is the result of what you put into it, that you know if you put stuff into it that's whiny and complainy you you're a whiner and a complainer
2: yes I, th- I think we become a reflection of the environment around us
0: so knowing that though that that means you can make changes to turn you yourself into someone else
2: yes you can change if you change your pattern of behavior then you'll change the outcomes I mean it's the same old saying of, if you keep repeating the old behaviors you'll get the same results well You have to make just very small changes in the way that you live, and you'll have tremendous changes in the outcome. So, you know, uh, best example and simple examples would be that if you are stressing out because you are up to your eyes in credit card debt, but you have a tendency to watch TV news that's every five minutes they've got a commercial about credit card debt solutions, you're just going to create in your mind this whole uh, stress level of credit card debt because you're thinking about it all the time. So the way to change that is to selectively remove those commercials from your uh, stimuli. And when your credit card bill comes through the door, instead of panicking about it, you'll say something out loud like, when I'm free of credit card debt, I'll buy myself a bottle of champagne and pay for it in cash. You just change the reaction because in life it's not what we think that's important, It's how we react to what we think. We, it's, it's difficult to control what we think because it's often instantaneous to something that stimulated that thought. So the only thing we have control on is how we react to that thought. And so you have to make these little changes, and it makes a huge difference.
0: Well, I can imagine somebody listening to you, though, and thinking, well, yeah, this all sounds good, but he doesn't have my life. I mean, you know, I've got that credit card debt, plus I just lost my job. They're going to foreclose on my house. And changing my reaction isn't going to solve any of that.
2: No, and and they're uh, good arguments, and, and so I would say, well, I'm living proof of all of that because I grew up in uh, a dirt poor family. We were evicted three times before I was seven years old. When when I was eight, my mother was given six months to live, and she was one of the great inspirations in my life because I was there when she um, looked through the kitchen window and looked up to the God uh, in the sky, and she said, if you think I'm coming now, you've got another thing coming. I'm not leaving my children until they're all fully grown and she held on to that and she was a woman of a word So she fought against incredible chronic pain for 14 years until we all left the nest during that time My father was unemployed that whole time. We lived on welfare It was quicksand to me and I found in all the biographies of these successful self-made men and women similar backgrounds they most of them had started in worse circumstances than even I was, I found myself in, but they found a way out, and so I did the same thing, and I got out of that quicksand, and lived a life of an adventure. But it, all adventures are bumpy, and at times on that bumpy adventure, I found myself up to my eyes in credit card debt, um, you know. But I found a way out of that too, doing exactly the same thing as I, I had done to get out of the original quicksand. So the three simple steps work, and and you just have to apply that in whatever situation you find yourself in and it will help you get out of that quicksand it'll give you the confidence to know that you can change everything that's happened up to this point in time
0: do you think though that that there's a kind of a expectation or a mentality today that like you just said that you know life has got bumps in the road that people expect that if their life was really good there would be no bumps that life you know when we do read or see on tv about these wonderfully wealthy and famous people it seems as if their life is so carefree, and that that is what a good life is.
2: Um, no, I think life would be a little boring if it was like that. I mean, um, you know, I, think I go back to it's, it's not what you think about a situation, but how you react to it that defines uh, the quality of your life. So, um, you know, I've been married thirty years. I've had a wonderful relationship, but during that thirty years, my wife has been told she's got six months to live—not once, but three times—and she chose to react to it differently than a lot of the people who were around her in the hospital who were were given similar prognosis. I was also given six months to live in 1989. I refused to believe that. I I chose a different reaction, if you like. So although my life has been an extraordinary adventure, there have been moments in it where there's been a a challenge that's right in my face that I've had to decide how I'm going to react to that. And whenever I face those challenges, I go back to the recipe that is in three simple steps, and that is maintain my individual opinion and thoughts, be disciplined so I, I... keep my pioneering spirit. I find ways to create great ideas and and, and plans and action, which is step two, that allows me to react differently to these circumstances. And then I execute on that plan, which is step three. And it's always helped me. I mean, here I am, I'm talking to you, and I'm now 50 and very healthy. But there was a time when I might have reacted differently, and I wouldn't have been here.
0: Well, I think most people would react differently. I mean, if, if somebody tells you you have six months to live... Uh, to react the way you reacted uh, is exceptional and I think difficult. I think most people would, would just go the other way, be very depressed and sad and, and accept that that is a reality. And, you know, that's it.
2: Yeah, I think some people do. I, I obviously was given a, a fantastic Real life lesson by watching how my mother dealt with the situation, and you know, she she told her God that she wasn't dying, and I believed her. And uh, <laughs> that unshakable belief is something that I also found in the lives of all those self-made men and women. They just develop this unshakable belief that, regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in, they're going to find a way out, and they always do. Can as, you as have I?
0: Can you just uh, before I let you go, the the three simple steps? Can you just state them and just give a couple of sentences? Just like one or two sentences of what each one means.
2: Yes, step one is about finding that pioneering spirit that we were all born with, but life and our environments tends to suppress over time. Um, you don't get to be successful by being a slave to other people's opinions and fashions and trends You get to be successful by having confidence in your own intuition to make a to make a good and strong decision for yourself So in order to get to that individualism You do have to learn to be selective about what you're allowing to influence yourself So you are selective with the media selective with the people you surround yourself with and and you will find yourself gaining incredible control over your mentality when that happens um, step two uh, The thing I hear most often is somebody telling me that they'd really like a better life or they'd like to start a company or they want to change the the way they are right now, but they just don't have any great ideas. So step two is all about putting yourself in a position to have those moments of insight because it's that one brilliant idea that separates the successful from the mediocrity. And uh, there's a few techniques to get to that point, and that's probably the most rewarding uh, feedback I get from the book is that people who take to heart step two, just have so many fantastic ideas and their life just changes from being somewhat boring to being just an incredible adventure. And then step three is how you take those great ideas and you turn them into the reality of your experience. Um, it's important, you can use any one of the steps in any order, just like you could use an ingredient uh, that uh, you know, you could use flour, butter and, and, and sugar by themselves. But when you mix them together and you put the appropriate heat and the appropriate energy behind it, then it transformed into a beautiful cake. Well, the same thing with three simple steps used together in the right order, it transforms lives. And it's been an absolute blast to watch how people's lives have been changed by this.
0: Well, your story is inspiring, and I love what you said about <laughs> complaining and complainers. Trevor Blake has been my guest. His book is Three Simple Steps, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. I'm sure you know, and you've probably experienced, that, like other things... Hand sanitizer is hard to come by, but you can make your own without a whole lot of trouble. It's really easy. Here's what you do. You take three quarters of a cup of isopropyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol, and that's still pretty much available in drugstores. Then you add to that a quarter cup of aloe vera gel, which helps keep your hands smooth and to counteract the harshness of that alcohol. And then you just add like uh, 10 drops of essential oil like lavender oil, Or you can even just use lemon juice. And then you whisk them all together in a bowl until it turns into a gel. The trick is you want to make sure you keep that 2 to 1 proportion of alcohol to aloe vera, which keeps the alcohol content at around 60%. You need 60%. That's the minimum needed to kill most germs, according to the CDC. And this recipe comes from Dr. Rishi Desai, who is chief medical officer of an organization called Osmosis. He's a former epidemic intelligence service officer in the Division of Viral Diseases at the CDC. And I figure he probably knows what he's talking about. We'll put a link up to the article that has this recipe in it so you can go back and get it when you need it to make your own hand sanitizer. Now, I'm sure there are people in your life, friends, family, who, uh, like you, are probably sitting around without a whole lot to do, so let me suggest that you share this podcast with them. I'm sure they'll appreciate it, and it'll engage them and help pass the time. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.